Hello again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new and improved Round the Modern Campfire podcast. Thanks again for tuning in this week. Before we get into the stories for tonight, I'd like to quickly plug my Patreon. If you would like to help out by becoming a patron, I now have three tiers going. Night Owls at $2, Firekeeper at $5, and Librarian at $8. Please keep in mind this is in US currency. This just keeps the podcast running smoothly and lets me keep producing more content for everyone. And, obviously, there are rewards for all the tiers, like choosing the stories for the next episode, guest narrating if you would be interested in doing so, and having your name listed off at the beginning or end of the episode. You can find this podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. I am also pleased to announce this podcast now has a coffee account, so for those who don't want to commit to regular donations via Patreon, feel free to consider throwing a few dollars my way if you've liked this podcast. The link will be in the description. Lastly, there is also the Round the Modern Campfire Facebook page, where you can get in contact with me, leave suggestions for stories, keep updated on the progress of this podcast, take part in deciding how the podcast works, or just generally chat. I'd love it if you popped in and said hi. Please also keep in mind if you like any of the stories from this episode, they are linked in the description so you can show these amazing authors the love they deserve. Anyway, with all that said and done, grab yourself a warm drink, a nice snack, and let's delve into the stories for tonight. I just got the email now, even though it was sent a few days ago. I'm laid off. I thought they'd be nicer about it, but they were nice in the worst way. So, now that I'm looking for new work, I crashed at my sister's apartment. She just got tested, so we're all on lockdown in her apartment until the ten days are up, even after the results in case it's a false negative. So in that time, she let me use her home computer, and I have the time to talk. I was thinking about some stories my old Disneyland co-worker Scott told me. They were pretty funny. One of them was back at a hot summer day he was working near Splash Mountain, and someone looked drenched, and he made a comment like, Gotta love getting wet out there. Excuse me? The large and wide woman asked. Now he was only assuming they had gone on the ride, so when the woman was upset that she was sweating, he felt the hammer drop like he was a little kid again in trouble. He was literally reported to the manager, and this was before we threw around the Karen vernacular. We just call this the big wet bitch story. The next story Scott actually liked telling is about this family at the gift shop where security cameras later caught a three-year-old girl shoplifting a Minnie Mouse hat, and that both parents unknowingly looked at each other and smirked. Not because they knew it was stolen. It was most likely that each one thought the other had bought it for her, so they walked out of the park before he could contact them. An innocent story. Aiden had a real feel-good story about a hospital patient who met her favourite Disney princess. Honestly, I don't have the words to describe when dreams really do come true for someone before they end. Honestly, his story may be harder for me to tell you than Mark's. Mark was one of the older workers at the park, and the oldest I ever talked to. The guy was 73, so he can tell his fuzzy memories of the first years the park was open, and he was pushed in a stroller. He remembers his mum leaving him in the stroller, and how this tall man stood by his stroller to watch him. The man wasn't a family member, or even a mascot, but what stuck out to him was that he was arrogant. He doesn't remember if he dressed nice, but that wasn't it. 
Like that was the vibe he gave off. Even though the memory is really hazy, he remembers feeling like this man had a dark sense of confidence and that he could get away with anything. The man reached towards him, but right at that moment his mother came out from the bathroom and took him away from that strange and confident man. As the years rolled by, he found himself working at the park, and as he was stacking the park strollers, he was just about done when he found the last one, he felt a presence. Standing near that stroller was a woman who, like the confident man, looked into the child in the seat, and at first he thought this was the mother. That was over when the mother ran towards them both, shouting. He called security and had the strange woman taken away. Now, once in a while, as he was putting strollers away, someone would call out to him and ask for his attention. Every time he did, they started a long conversation asking about where certain rides or places were, and are, and the changes to the park, and thanking him for his time. By the time he got back, nothing unusual happened. So he went about the next days doing the same thing. One day, as he was stacking the carts and strollers, he counted that one was missing. Odd. Perhaps it was near a ride queue. It wasn't. Since it was only one, he let it slide and went back home until his next shift. It wasn't until a few days when the same thing would happen once in a while. At least it felt like it didn't happen every day, so why worry? He had no idea where the missing strollers went, and he didn't care. As the years went by, he lost track of when this would happen, and how long it had been since the last time it happened until, pretty soon, he was numb to it. Several strollers were missing a month, every year, and since there was still more than enough to go around, nobody said anything to him. Besides, they sometimes ordered more. So that was when he told himself he didn't care and it shouldn't bother him. Around that time, he was transferred to the new California Adventure Park and worked at the Bugs Life area. He's been working at California Adventure ever since. So one night in 2016, he tells us about these missing strollers. When we ask why does he tell us so late and why now, he gives his reason. Mark said he was on a long road trip by himself. It was getting really late. He was running out of gas. There wasn't a city or even a streetlight for miles. He was in the middle of nowhere. That was all he knew. He pulled over and took a nap in his car. That night, in the dark of the desert, he felt the warm wind belly the cold night. It was difficult for him to sleep. That was when he heard it. A loud, unearthly series of cries in the dark. Distant screams echo in the night. If he could listen carefully, he said, each almost sounded like a baby cry. Although he said he hadn't ruled out that he was hearing coyotes or some other animal making a similar sound. The next morning, his car wouldn't start. He got out and began to push it down the road in neutral when an old beat-up pickup pulled in next to him and this dirty little teenage boy with a big toothy grin asked if he needed a lift to town. He said he needed a tow, but the kid just looked at him like he hadn't heard that word before. As they went over and around the large mesa... Mark realised that they were going off-road. This is a shortcut to town. As a matter of fact, it's the only shortcut to town. (laughs) They pulled into a quaint little town with a sense of peace and safety there. Mark didn't know what to think. The people there were very hospitable to him, and he couldn't bring himself to feel any discomfort. He tried calling, but the reception died, and there were no cell phone towers. He asked if there was a phone he could use, and everyone in town would 
look at him the same funny way, not knowing what he was talking about, and try to change the subject. As a matter of fact, nobody had a phone and no place even had a TV. The only electric outlet was rusted over with the frame chipped off, and the only use was to help pump the gas he desperately needed into a gallon can. People offered him a ride in the same pickup to and back from his car, as they looked like they had never taken anyone else in that pickup in months. However, as clueless technology-wise as the townspeople were, they were so friendly and charming that Mark didn't care much about that. It gave him the feeling of how places used to be, when everyone knew each other on a first-name basis. That kind of thing. Anyway, as he drove off past the town, he took off his hat and waved goodbye, and they were all smiles and begged him to stay. He had to keep going, so he said his farewells, and that was all he ever saw of that town. He tried finding it again, even took the same roads, but it was all just desert. What he told us next chilled us in the back of our necks. Let me see if I can remember how he put it in his own words. Funny thing, after I drove past that town, my car almost fell off into a canyon that cracked in the floor like from out of nowhere. Luckily, I backed up just in time to pull out safely before gravity did its dirty work. We all laughed, but his story wasn't over. And you wouldn't believe how many strollers I saw at the bottom of that canyon. It all started because I wanted to be a good person. I had taken some old things of mine, stuffed from my parents' house, that I had shoved in the back of my closet, and donated them to Habitsville's local second-hand shop. I figured someone else could use my threadbare Habitsville high t-shirts more than I was at the time. What I didn't intend, however, was to give away Bob. This next bit is a little embarrassing. Bob is a small pink stuffed bear with a little jingle inside his stomach. I've had him since I was a baby, and although I've outgrown other such childish things, Bob is sacred. That's why, heart sinking, I retraced my steps last Thursday back to the second-hand store where I was sure Bob had accidentally slipped into one of my donation boxes. It took some coaxing, but an employee eventually informed me that Bob had already been purchased. A tingle of silly grief swept through me, but then I was given hope. Bob had been bought by Nora Vanderweld, owner and chief proprietor, along with her two sisters, of Narrow Street Antiques, right here in Habitsville. A quaint little bell chimed when I entered the shop. The musty smell of decay and history hugged my nostrils, not in an unpleasant way. The shop was crowded, but not with people. The sheer amount of things, even just in the foyer, were insane. The books were stacked higher than my head, their spines peeling with age. Knickknacks and figurines covered every surface, and I suddenly became hyper-aware of my limbs. I made my way inside, carefully. At the front desk were three women, the Vanderweld sisters. Two were seated in rocking chairs on either side of the counter, their eyes dark underneath cloth hats, knitting slowly from a single ball of yarn in a scented basket. It was impossible to tell what they were making something large and dark. In the centre, standing perfectly still, was Nora Vanderweld. She had wild grey hair and a lined face, with sharp eyes that locked onto me as soon as I entered. "'Good afternoon,' she said, her voice a cold and unconcerned rasp. "'Welcome to Narrow Street Antiques. Can I help you find anything?' 
I took a few steps towards her, already unreasonably nervous. Yes, um... I'm looking for a specific item I was told you purchased from the second-hand store a few days ago. It's like a small stuffed bear. Jingles. Pink. I asked, hopefully. She smiled, her aged lips curling upward so slowly I thought they might creak. Oh, yes. We've put that particular item onto our shelves. He's around here somewhere. Her grin widened and I subconsciously took one step back. Why don't you go find him? I gazed over my shoulder. There was a ton of stuff in here, sure, but judging from the shoddy exterior of the building, this place wasn't that big. I'm not one to complain about customer service, so I just nodded. Okay, thank you. I turned heel and headed into the opening between the stacks of books. Good luck. Just make your way back up to the counter once you find Bob. I nodded before entering the slim aisle. By the time I realized I had never actually told Nora Bob's name, I couldn't see the front counter anymore. My first hour or so, at least what felt like an hour, went smoothly. My eyes were peeled for any sign of my stuffed friend, and as I weaved through tall wooden cabinets lined with figurines and racks of sweaters from the 1980s, I actually found myself enjoying the hunt. Walking deeper into the antique shop was like rappelling down a ravine. Every few feet, a new strata of time was revealed. The only thing that troubled me was that I had been there for an hour, and I still hadn't found the back wall of the antique shop. Not only had I not found the back wall, but I hadn't turned or moved out of this single aisle for quite some time. It was like one particular path had been built for the customers to move through, so slim that if one wanted to move in front of another, they would literally have to climb on top of each other. If I was claustrophobic, I might have had to turn back. I suppose that was why they called it Narrow Street Antiques. I had an old toy truck in my hands when I first saw it. I was considering the fact that perhaps Bob wasn't actually out in the shop, that Nora had been mistaken, that I was in the wrong place. It was during this thought that it happened. There, in the very corner of my eye, just for a moment, a flash of something dark and quick, I turned my head quickly, but there was nothing. I didn't think much of it. Then I turned my head again, back towards the front. There, blocking the only path forward, was a huge shape. It was dark, foreboding, and utterly terrible. It wasn't a person, necessarily. It was like a heavy blanket had been draped over a set of stilts, and a bowling ball had been balanced at the top. Flies buzzed around its head, or what I assumed was its head, and the scent of decay and death wafted towards me in a powerful wave. There were a few times in my life when I had felt pure, unfiltered dread such as this. I stood completely still, and the figure did the same. Except there was movement beneath its sheet, small shifting, as though the entire shape was vibrating. Then, through a little ring-sized hole in the front of the sheet, Something came out. A tiny, pink, and plump child's finger. My breathing was shallow as the finger pointed at me. Then, the entire figure lurched forward, swaying as though the top was attached to the bottom. I was still stuck in my fear-driven paralysis. It got closer, and my eyes watered from the wretched smell. It was like my feet were incapable of turning back, running back down the slight path and out the door. 
The buzzing of flies got louder and louder. I shut my eyes. And then it all stopped. I opened them again to see that the creature was gone. Not even a fly remained. I was shaking violently. I didn't need Bob this badly. I raised a foot to turn back, and it refused to budge. It was like some invisible barrier existed between myself and the back half of the path. Frightened at the prospect of being stuck in this spot, to wait for the creature to return, I tried to step forward. It was as easy as it had ever been. The message was clear. There was no choice but to continue. I can't be certain, but I believe three days passed in the antique store until I saw the creature again. It's hard to be sure of the time, because, as far as I can tell, the shop never closed. The lights overhead never shut off. I didn't hear the door at the front open or close either, but that could be because I had travelled a great distance from there to here. It was strange. I didn't feel hungry or thirsty, and I never had to use the bathroom. I didn't need to sleep. I would think I was exaggerating the time, had about three days' worth of stubble not sprouted from my chin. I was somewhere in the 1940s when I thought I saw Bob. Amid a slew of war memorabilia and faded postcards, I saw it. Something like a little light pink arm sticking out amongst some other worn stuffed animals. I grabbed onto it, pulling eagerly. Nora had told me, albeit multiple days prior, that if I found Bob, I could bring him back to the register. I had to hold on to the hope that once I found what I was looking for, I would be able to leave the shop. I yanked it loose, but it wasn't Bob. Instead, in my hand, I held a tiny child's finger. Immediately, I dropped it to the ground, feeling that familiar rush of anger that often accompanies a terrifying surprise. It bounced once on the surface before lying still, a tiny Vienna sausage. I stared at it. That feeling of hope when I had first thought I had found what I was looking for was extinguished, and instead a crushing feeling of hopelessness and despair filled me. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I couldn't find my way out. I was lost. As soon as I had that thought, I jumped back. The finger, which had been lying still, moved. It flipped so the nail was facing up towards me. Then slowly, it began to inch its way along, continuing down the narrow path. I looked up, and there he was. He stood still, the antiquer. If he had eyes, I assumed they were fixed on me. We remained, me paralysed by my immobile feet, and he waiting in place as the finger dragged itself across the floor over to him. I thought it might stop when it got to the edge of his shroud, but instead it merely crawled underneath. It joined the scattered movement that caused the material to jolt around, and then I saw it again. The child's finger emerged from the hole in the shroud and pointed at me. It was happening all again. The lurching movements towards me, the flies buzzing around, some hitting my face in their flurry, the smell nearly made me vomit. Perhaps I would have if I could move, but the only thing there was to do was watch the figure approach. I didn't shut my eyes this time. I watched as it reached a close distance, about six inches in front of me. Then, it bent at the middle, the top leaning down over me. I felt hot breath on the cold sweat that had broken out across my forehead. There was something in there, beneath the shadow, that much I knew. 
but I couldn't bring myself to lift my chin and see it for myself. And then, it was gone. Another shudder rattled through my tired body. My eyes were watering from the acrid smell and from relief. My chest was heavy with a terrible uncertainty, and yet, I was sure of two things. One, I never wanted to see that thing again, and two, the only place to go was onward. By my second or third week at Narrow Street Antiques, I thought I had found a way to keep the antiquer away. Thinking about it now, when my mind is less plagued with whatever influence the shop held over me those weeks, it's hard to say whether or not I was right. But this was at least my working theory. The antiquer is looking for lost things, because that's what antiques are, right? Things unstuck in time. Items that have outgrown their usefulness, their relevance, and so their natural place is no longer as a singular object. An antique is meant to be picked up, dusted off, and added to a collection. And I think if I get lost enough, the antiquer will add me to his. I was in the late 1800s by that point, the items around me growing more decayed and broken with each step that I took. I had learned something new, something incredibly exciting. The path that I had been following, miles and miles in the same straight line, through the seemingly endless shop, was not the only road available to me. My eyes had grown heavy and unfocused while I was trudging along, and my foot caught on the leg of a table. I stumbled, holding up my arm to catch my fall, against a large wardrobe to my right, and when I did, it rocked, ever so slightly. It created a gap in the wall of old knickknacks that surrounded me, just for a moment, and through that crack, I could see it. A new par. Then the wardrobe fell back into place, and it was gone. I heaved against the wardrobe, pressing my shoulder hard against its wooden surface. It was incredibly heavy, but at this point, multiple weeks, if not months in this antique shop, I was as determined as I had ever been. I nudged the bulky piece of furniture, inch by inch, until I created a crevice that was wide enough for me to slip through. The new path took my breath away. Not because it was beautiful, no. Far from it. Because it was terrifying. They were baby dolls. Not modern ones, either. These had to be from the 1700s, maybe even older, all made of cracked china, with faded red lips and black dot eyes. They were dressed up in plain cloth dresses and gingham trousers. They weren't lined on shelves or sat up on tables. They made up the walls themselves. A sea of them on either side, and when I looked up, I could see they covered the ceiling as well, a tunnel forming that I couldn't see the end of. And when I looked closer, I could see it. Something strange, even stranger than what I'd already seen. None of the dolls had their fingers. Absolute terror gripped me. A thousand beady eyes staring at me, no sign of what I had come for, and though I tried to beat it back down, I was feeling more lost than ever. As soon as the inkling crossed my mind, there he was. The antiquer, standing still as he always was, blocking my path as he always did. I couldn't fight it this time. I couldn't reassure myself, couldn't look away, certainly couldn't turn back. 
I just watched the antiquer as he watched me. And then, something started to happen. The shapes that writhed beneath his shroud began to rumble and shake. They moved faster and faster, and soon I saw something I wish I hadn't. The fingers, small and fleshy, began to crawl out from under the antiquer's shroud. They inched, faster than the last one had, and as I watched, they did something remarkably horrible. Crawling like caterpillars, they each made their way onto the hand of a doll. When the last one stopped, there was a moment of stillness. There were no more wriggling shapes under the antiquer's robes. We both stood, facing one another. Then, the last finger appeared, through the single hole in the shroud, and pointed at me. That was when the dolls began to close in. They spilled, like water from a dam, in from the walls and down from the ceiling, the only thing propelling them forwards, the fleshy fingers on their dead porcelain hands. They dragged their little bodies along, and as they approached, I tried something desperate. I took the first step back that I had in weeks. After that first step, another followed, and soon I was running back down the path, out from behind the wardrobe and back down the narrow path from where I had come. Fleshy fingers and cold ceramic touched my shoulder for only a moment, but the small space that had led me into the dull hallway had slowed down the figures considerably. I was sprinting, my breath hard, and then I skidded to a stop. In front of me, fingers still pointed, suddenly was the antiquer. I looked to my left, where a large shelf stood tall, lined with glass animal figures. With a single push, it crashed to the ground. I ran down this new hallway, lined with decorative kites from the 1800s. I ripped through their carefully preserved paper bodies and found myself in another new place, this time lined with novelty can openers from the 1920s. I glanced behind me as I dug through the metal bits and saw the first hints of the tiny porcelain children appearing down the long stretch as I found a path to somewhere new. 50s kitchen aprons, 60s false teeth, 70s record players, all with a different disc playing in a minor key. And then suddenly, there we were. 90s stuffed animals. It must have been because there, between a giraffe with a rip in his neck and a rabbit with a twisted ear, there was Bob. I grabbed him, the familiar jingle briefly bringing me nostalgic calm. I was running again, knowing that I was nearing the front of the store by the time travelling forwards. I dug through the other stuffed animals, throwing them behind me with one hand while I clutched my prize with the other. Then, there was the smallest opening, and I could see it. The foyer, where all of this had begun, weeks before. I stuck one foot through, then my shoulder. I went to step out, and then something yanked me back, and I turned. One doll, the fastest of them, had clung onto Bob's arm, its flesh fingers locked in an iron-tight grip. I pulled. It pulled. There was a long rip, the sound of stitches tearing, and then I was out, the only casualty being Bob's left arm. Stuffed animals fell together, closing the gap. It was as though there had never been an opening at all. I panted, my hands on my knees, my body disgusting with the build-up of sweat and fear on my skin. Welcome back. I looked up. There was Nora Vanderweld, standing in the same place she had been when I left her. 
In fact, she was even wearing the same clothes, and her sisters were still sitting in their rocking chairs, barely any progress made on their knitting since I had left. I moved my mouth, but no words came out. So long had it been since I spoke. Her eyes moved down to Bob and his mangled arm. Oh, it's such a shame that's been damaged. I know our shop is a precarious place. She smiled, slow and knowing. That one's on the house. I went home. To my great shock, it was a mere thirty minutes from when I had first entered the shop, despite the beard that had begun to form on my face and the tired feeling in my bones. There's still so much that I don't know about narrow street antiques and the antiqua that lies within it. But sometimes, in the very corner of my eye, I can see it for a moment. A dark shape, vibrating with a thousand tiny fingers, waiting patiently for me to lose my way again. <laughs>